Treehouse, you've won our free landscaping services for one full year. We'll mow your lawn, top your trees, mulch, seed, fertilize, and feed. Isn't that wonderful? Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And I'm very excited to be with you here today to talk about this particular episode, which is... Uh, the Oracle wore a cashmere suit. Uh, this is, I think, the second episode of season three? Yes. Our our friend uh, Jim Rockford uh, gets embroiled in a psychic scam. Mm-hmm. I, I like this episode a lot. It's weird. I have a certain amount of anxiety and stress about fiction in which a fake psychic might get away with being believed so this is a fun episode for me and this is a good one for all the skeptics out there i guess i will say at the top that both the episode and i imagine our conversation about it are going to come down pretty heavily on the side of the psychic stuff is bunk Right. So if that's going to be a problem for, for you, dear listener, we, we think of ourselves as evidence-based realists in, in this regard, and you probably wouldn't want to watch this episode. But if you're not too invested in the idea of psychic phenomena being a motive force for crime solving, then this episode has a lot for you. Yeah. This one was written by David Chase, new writer for us on the on the show so far. This is the first episode he wrote of The Rockford Files, but he went on to have quite the career. Um, I mean, among other things, he, he's writing for other shows as well, but he ended up writing 18 episodes over the course of the series, plus two of the 90s movies. He also produced over the course of the show and became, I believe, the executive producer of the 90s movies or some of them. And also his probably more contemporary claim to fame is that he is the guy who came up with The Sopranos. And right. was the executive producer for that show. This this episode overall has a lot of good good credits in it. Um, so David yeah, yeah. Chase is the writer, directed by Russ Mayberry, who is one of our favorite directors so far. I think he directed The Countess and Charlie Harris at Large. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. Um, and we enjoyed a lot of the semi-experimental kind of choices in those. This one less so, except for one scene that I want to talk about. But he, this episode has really good flow to it, which I think we can attribute at least partly to to Russ. The main foil for, for Jim Rockford in this one is played by Robert Weber, who shows up in everything. If you watch any shows from this period, you recognize this guy. This is one of his five appearances in the Rockford Files, including uh, a very memorable episode where he plays a uh, senator who gets into some some trouble, which we haven't covered yet, but hopefully we will down the line. And we'll have a couple other little credits to call out as we go through the episode, but um, strong cast and crew this yeah. time around. Well, I suppose we should start with the preview montage. Mm -hmm. It's a good mix of the particular episode that we're going to see. I mean, I'm not going to say that any of them aren't, but uh, we get a good joke about chlamydia, uh, which we'll <laughs> soon find out is a play on uh, uh, our psychic's name. We get a nice tumble. It's a little chaotic in, uh, in a good way. I thought somebody's shoe had been yanked off or something because I couldn't <laughs> quite make out. And then finally ends with this moment where we think, oh no, is Rockford going to get run over? Yeah, we definitely see some threats to Rockford's physical well-being in the preview montage. Also, the fact that there will be some some question of some $80,000 coming yes. up. Before we get into any of that, though, I want to talk about a little theory I have about the answering machine message. Okay. Uh, which you've heard at the top of this particular episode. Uh, Rockford has won free landscaping for a year. This is 
I think, a quintessential Rockford file joke where mm-hmm. he gets something that he cannot use. They're not going to come landscape the asphalt around his trailer? Yeah, exactly. But I did spend a moment thinking about it because I did think that this was this gorgeous moment of Rockford Files uh, humor. I was like, how did he win that? How did he get into the running? And I envisioned, you know, like they would often have these win a free dinner or win a free something if you put your business card in something. Mm, Yeah. This is my theory. Under some false guise, he was at a landscaper's uh, under a false guise to investigate something and drop a business card in there. Would he use his actual phone number in a fake business card? So here's my my counter theory yeah. based entirely on, on, on what you've just said. <laughs> Rocky stuffed one of those with multiple cards because Rocky's the one who wants the landscaping. Yes. And that ties into his appearance later in the episode. This is why we have this podcast is to answer... <laughs> questions like these oh that's good that's good all right so we'll assume we'll go ahead and add that to the headcanon for this episode yeah 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners but especially our gumshoes for this episode we have five of them to thank thank you kevin lovecraft you can find him on the wednesday evening podcast all-stars actual play podcast visit misdirectedmark.com to find that feed along with other gaming podcasts in the misdirected mark productions network thank you lowell francis Check out his award-nominated blog full of insights and historical analysis of role-playing games at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thank you to Shane Liebling and Dylan Winslow. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very generous support. Find him on Twitter at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout-out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. So speaking of landscaping, um, yeah. we start off on the beach outside... Jim's trailer, uh, where there's a big to-do, bunch of machine noise waking up our good friend Jim Rockford. He clearly does not get up this early in his normal daily routine. And he confronts who we soon learn is our psychic, Roman Clementi, played by Robert Weber. Clementi and some representatives of the police are there because they're investigating a set of disappearances. And they brought him in to help them with the case because they don't have any leads. He's had some psychic vibrations. He has the pictures of the disappeared people and they're they're talking to him. They're, he's getting impressions from them. These vibrations have led them to the beach outside <laughs> Rockford's trailer. He's sure that Rockford has something to do with this. As part of this little intro scene, he handles a piece of clothing that they've dug up. Some ways that, that this episode handles race and representation of race has not aged very well, I'd say. Yo, and yeah, this is yeah. this is one of those moments where he uh, he handles this and says that this piece of clothing didn't belong to a Caucasian, possibly a, a Negro or Oriental. Um, <laughs> your lab could prove me wrong. So that's just to say that this is some of the tone of the episode set early. He's he's kind of a faux intellectual. Right. These are not the ways that we refer to people today. Right. But at the time, I think, might be coded a little bit as uh, an academic way of referring to, to someone. The specific thing here is that he's he's giving them information that the lab probably couldn't tell you, right? He's like, your lab could prove me wrong. There's no way that the lab is going to be able to tell the ethnicity of someone who wore a piece of clothing, right? That has been buried in sand for who knows how long. So this case is a missing persons case. Rick Richards and Allison Curry have disappeared. He's sure that they'll be found near a body of water mm-hmm. and that Allison... 
Curry has contact lenses or will be missing a contact lens <laughs> once they're found. So he has this whole patter about all this stuff. And Rockford, standing there in his bathrobe, is just smirking and rolling his eyes through the entire interaction. It's nearly 6 a.m., as Rockford points out, and he's been woken up. He's pulled from his sleep, and this reminds me of the the episode we saw where Rockford just couldn't sleep. Charlie Harris at large. The, the way the scene opens with, with Rockford in bed, too peaceful not to disturb him. Even if they were there for legitimate reasons he was going to be angry and upset with them. The psychic just is like a just a bit too far, and uh, we get a lot of amazing facial expressions out of James Gardner here. Yeah, we're going to be seeing throughout this whole episode amazing facial expressions and body language from yeah. pretty much everyone in it. We'll, we'll call out particularly great examples, but it is a case of like, there's a lot of joy in watching this episode for the portrayals in addition to yeah. finding out the story. In particular here, Rockford just full-on smirks when Clementi says, you've probably heard of me. <laughs> yes. They have an awkward handshake. He, uh, Clementi says that uh, he'll try to keep the noise down and Rockford storms back off to his trailer where his dad, Rocky, appears in his truck. There was an early bird special on a rototiller. <laughs> Maybe tying back to our uh, yeah theory, our landscaping theory. He, he has a truck bed that he wants to put together for his garden. So he wants to come over and find his, uh, his special plumb bob that was awarded to him from the Masonic Lodge. And he's lost it. Rockford, of course, knows that he that Rocky just, just wants to get Rockford to help him with the manual labor for this yeah. truck bed. Rockford explains that he was woken up by that guy and he points out Clementi. Rocky, I think in a moment that shows exactly how this episode wants Clementi to be positioned, right. Rocky says, I've seen that guy on Carson. He's stuffed fuller of beans than a cheap burrito. <laughs> that was such a good line. And I will say this, I like a lot of beans in my burrito, so mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a, a dig on cheap burritos or just the fact that burritos have a lot of beans. I don't know. <laughs> but the, um, the Carson deal... It's one of my favorite bits, how Rocky's interpretation of this guy is based entirely on the fact that he was on Carson. Right. But he he, he knows that he's uh, some kind of shyster. Yeah, yeah. He knows that there's, there's something wrong with him, but he was on Carson. So right. what are you going to do, right? The fact that even Rocky knows yeah. that this guy is full of it is uh, important for how the rest of the episode treats his psychic powers, right? Yeah. Pretty early on, we are in the position of, how is Rockford going to prove this guy wrong as opposed to does this guy actually have some kind of right. ability? Yeah, yeah. As audience, we're not going to be mystified right. by anything he does. So this isn't just a coincidence. Uh, Rockford has a bad feeling because he was uh, surveilling these two people that disappeared. So this is the, the tie-in happens to get us get the, the plot moving. He has a surveillance job, followed them for a couple of days, they disappeared, uh, he couldn't pick them back up, and now Clementi's on his beach looking for them. He doesn't right. believe in coincidences like this. And then there's a knock on the door, and our good friend Sergeant Becker, Dennis, comes in with Clementi, yeah. looking a little like he's not 100% happy with what he's doing, which is a really <laughs> good facial expression that he has a lot of the time. Oh, so good. He has to ask Jim what he knows about this disappearance, because Clementi says that he knows that Rockford knows something. Just before that happened, was Rockford... He was going to go investigate it somehow. Yeah, he right? said that he was, was going to go sniff around, and then before right. he could actually go anywhere, they knocked at his door. There's going to become, in this episode, a, a reoccurring motif where Clementi just beats Rockford to the cops each yeah. time. You know, and, and that's how he sort of solidifies his arguments 
Mm-hmm. He gets to present them before Rockford can tell them what what's actually happening. A line at the end of this conversation is Dennis asks Rockford, how did he know that you were on this case? Because only me and you knew that. Right. Yes. So we have the first indication that there's some layers of subterfuge going on. And the answer to that question doesn't show up until really near the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I get irrationally upset with, not with the answer itself, but the thing behind the answer. I, I For some reason, I'm just like, that. that is the villain of this episode. Oh, well, we'll get into that when we get there. Cut to police headquarters uh, in one of our familiar interview rooms. Rockford is giving his statement. Beth is there with him, his lawyer and friend, sometime more than friend. She has a, a small but important role in this episode. We are also in the presence of Lieutenant Deal. Oh, is it Deal? Is I think it's Chapman. Oh, you're right. It is Chapman. Does Deal come later or is it Chapman the whole time? No, it's Chapman the whole time. So let's talk about Deal and Chapman for a second, if we can. Okay. I do have trouble keeping those two apart, but I feel, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Chapman is slightly more sympathetic to Rockford than Deal is. Deal definitely doesn't, doesn't care for Rockford. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember if Chapman out and out hates Rockford. Generally, the stories where there's Chapman are ones where Rockford is incidental to another crime. While the stories with Deal are more where Rockford is in up to his neck. And part of it is also keeping Deal off his back. That is my sense. I'd have to like chart it out to really see if that's really the division. But the two actors are pretty similar looking, I think, is part of what my confusion comes from sometimes. My notes specifically say Deal, and then I cross it out and Chapman. (laughs) I was like... It, It is Chapman. So we're there with Jim... Beth Becker, Lieutenant Chapman, and Clementi. Rockford is giving his statement that he was following Rick Richards. Yeah, he works for a record company in some capacity, and they suspected him of skimming money. They employed Jim to follow him to find out, get some proof about this. Rockford saw him and uh, the woman Allison Curry together. He followed them together, and then they disappeared overnight, essentially. When he heard that, that this disappearance was being investigated, he told Dennis about it because he wasn't going to be involved in an open police case. Right. The story was totally fine two days ago, but now this guy, Clementi, is coming in, <laughs> and they're getting suspicious all over again, and uh, he doesn't see why he has to be brought into it again. Beth doesn't want Clementi there, as he's not a law enforcement official, and Chapman then explains that he wants him there. He's been very helpful in other cases, including a, a murder case in Chicago. Oh, Chicago. I do like how, and this is the thing I, I've always liked about Beth, is that uh, when it comes to the law, she is no nonsense. Mm-hmm. Like, you want her on your side. There's no reason why Clementi should be in the room, and the person out of that group that you want objecting to that is Beth. And if Beth wasn't there, then Rockford would object to it. But then the the setup is Rockford versus Clementi. So, you you know, he can't have credibility. So you have the character of Beth present that. Yeah. And Clementi steps out. Yeah. He knows how this game is played, I think. So he's yeah. like, before some, anyone can get really mad at him, he's just like, okay, I'll step out. But I know that Rockford is, knows something about this. Chapman wants Rockford to go through everything again. Rockford says, you know, I already took a couple hours to go through everything once. I'm not going to do it again. Beth comes in with the, unless you're going to file the proper paperwork, which they are not willing to do at the current time. 
As they leave the station, Dennis is very apologetic and wants wants Jim to know that he doesn't really believe in this mumbo jumbo, but, you know, they brought the guy in. Rockford's like, I understand. And then as they are actually exiting, Clementi is on Dennis's phone yelling at a publisher or something about uh, some kind of timeline getting messed up or something like that, giving us our first look into what I think, at least I'd assumed since the mention of being on Johnny Carson, that this guy turns everything into a publicity event, into a publicity right. stunt. I mean, the way he comports himself he definitely feels like he's he has an air about him that he's trying to project but this is definitely the hard evidence that he's going to try and make money off of the publicity he makes out of this case beth offers to buy lunch for rockford which is great but rockford can't take her up on it he's already running (laughs) late because they've wasted so much of his time and he has a a gig he's trying to track someone down who disappeared in topanga so both of us are frustrated by this (laughs) because there's no exchange of money Mm -hmm. and there's no lunch we have a, a brief sequence where Rockford goes to, to Topanga trying to track down this missing person. Uh, there's a little questioning montage. But the important thing here is that when he gets back in his car to leave, he sits on his sunglasses. Yes. I remember the first time that I saw this episode going, why would Rockford sit on his sunglasses? <laughs> he would never forget that he left his sunglasses on the seat. I had this visceral reaction to like, something is wrong. Jim Rockford does not sit on his own sunglasses in his own car. I can't remember if there's like a musical sting. Womp womp. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is one. It, yeah, it definitely is. It's something that could roll off as just uh, Rockford's having a bad day. And this is just how bad it's getting. And it works on that level. But then it turns out it has yeah. significance later. So my initial reaction was was uh, oh, yeah. was yeah. right. Trust your instincts. Rockford returns to his client who hired him to find her brother. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't think that her brother was ever in Topanga. She's very chill as she's like, oh, well, thank you for trying. Yeah. But she does pay him. He gives her a bill. She counts out some some cash. As she does so, she says that she didn't know she was hiring someone with such notoriety and shows him a newspaper headline that calls him out as a, quote, unwilling informant in yes. this Clementi's inv- psychic investigation. So as frustrated as you were with the glasses, I was frustrated with uh, this payment because Rockford doesn't get paid. So this is another moment where we're off kilter a little bit because... Uh, what should happen, according to our internal instincts about these scenes <laughs> in a Rockford file, is that the fact that he doesn't produce her brother means that she's going to find some way to pay him less than what he is billing her for. Right. And yet she just pays him. And you go, what's going on? Also, for the record, I'm going to assume he did a day's worth of work there mm-hmm. and he got $200. No money was mentioned, but I got to hold on to every scrap I can here. <laughs> And again, like the glasses, initial reaction ends up being confirmed later, Yeah, uh, as we will see. Well, after that hard and semi-frustrating day's work, even though he did get paid, uh, Rockford returns to his trailer, where he immediately gets jumped by three guys waiting for him inside the trailer. Yes. So he he gets jumped, he gets kind of knocked out, and then the camera is at his perspective as he comes to staring directly into the cast on the leg of one of his assailants. This brings me to Chicken Little is a Little Chicken, mm-hmm. where the uh, the second mob boss, his arm's in a cast. It's such a great detail, and it was, I don't know, maybe I missed it, but I don't think it's actually necessary to the story at all. No. It just makes you pay attention to that character. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who's come with his friends to jump Rockford, even though his leg is in a cast. That's a great detail. 
but I will say that I think he ends up with more memorable details than he needs. Right. Okay. Yeah. But at, at the very least, it is a great visual moment where Rockford like yeah. wakes up from getting jumped and sees a cast in front of his face. Yeah. It's good. This guy is obviously Latino. He kind of speaks like a mix of Spanish, Spanglish, and semi-accented English. He's extremely wet. I think he's meant to be like perspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's he's got the DTs or something. He, he's going with through withdrawal. Yeah. And he has this like shark tooth earring that is extremely yeah. uh, noticeable. So this is another kind of element in this particular episode that I feel like maybe hasn't aged super well because I think there's a lot of racialized visualization right. on this character that isn't on other characters. Here is the druggy Mexican guy. He's he's threatening Rockford in Spanish when he can speak perfectly fine English and there doesn't seem to be any reason to assume Rockford would understand Spanish. They just want to establish mm -hmm. that he's Hispanic. It's a little weird. Now, th this isn't the guy with the broken leg, though. No, that's right? the, it's the same guy. Oh, no, he has the broken leg and the earring. All right, yeah, no, this guy has too many details. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's sitting down, he starts like doing the drumming also. In my head, I split him into two different characters. I don't know, maybe maybe we're having a, a Berenstein, Berenstein moment, yeah. so uh, <laughs> you'll have to go watch the episode for yourself and tell us how many characters are in this, in this scene. Yes. But the, the actor, Pepe Serna, was all over the place at this time. He's in tons of stuff in the in the 70s through today. But he had a, a pretty major role in Scarface. I haven't seen Scarface in a long time. But he was the character that I think was like a buddy with the main guy with, with Scarface and uh, got chopped up by the chainsaw. If you're like me and you remember Red Dawn, I think he's the, the dad that screams, Avenge me. <laughs> the, I know he's in Red Dawn. I just can't remember if he is the dad who's... He's in Buckaroo Banzai. I think he's one of the crew. Like, I think he's one of the band. He's in a lot of interesting things. Um, he's yeah. also a fine artist and uh, has received a number of awards for being a uh, Hispanic actor and artist over, over the years and stuff. So Pepe Serna doing a great job. A little over-racialized in this episode for my taste, yeah. but uh, he definitely inhabits the role. I'll give him that. Yeah. So these guys, they're roughing up Rockford because they want their... 80 grand. They saw Clementi on TV saying that Rockford knew something about the disappearance. And these guys had given Rick, the guy who disappeared, $80,000 to score them coke. And yes. now he's gone. The, the police haven't recovered the money. So someone has their money or their cocaine and they want it. Rockford obviously is denying that he knows anything about ADGs, which is true as far as we know that we learned the character's name is ray uh ray ochoa as when ray starts like drumming on the table and the, the other two guys who are blonde and yeah <laughs> just look like california surfers yeah. when the guy starts wrapping a chain around his wrist the shark tooth earring i think that the in uh hints of what will become point break <laughs> like they, they're yeah. surf villains this is a great scene for rockford under pressure he's in a chokehold the whole time and he's still mouthing off to him in in just classic it's a fun scene to watch rockford manages to find his opening and gives one a, a sucker kick he kicks one <laughs> of the guys on the instep which sends all four of them brawling outside of the trailer to where a, a beach patrol car is patrolling and, and sees them and announces like hey who's over there so the the goons yell and their escape car drives up we see ray come out hobbling on the one leg here oh, so okay. i think that's what pulls it together for yeah. me 
and they uh, drive off after giving Rockford a couple good gut sinkers, as he refers to them. Oh, such good language. Uh, I really like the way he cleared the room. Yeah. In this in this fight, because it's not he's not Steven Seagal. It's not choreographed, but it, it's practiced. Mm-hmm. He's a brawler, and he was probably spending that whole time figuring out how he's going to create the smallest opening for him to tumble out. Like, get out of the room, figure out what's going to happen next right. when that happens. He doesn't knock everyone unconscious and walk out John Wick style. Yeah, he takes a small advantage that he can find and then just yeah. keep, keeps pushing it until something happens. Yeah. He's just lucky that someone was there, though. Yeah. So he scares them off, and we cut to short scene in Beth's apartment, one of our favorite locations. Yes. <laughs> he's obviously told her what happened, and she clarifies for us as the audience now you have to go to the cops because now you know something that they don't because the cops don't know anything about this money it hasn't come up before yeah so she wants him to tell dennis this is very important for the the narrative of the episode rockford knows something about the case first yes all right next scene uh rockford and beth have gone down to the police station to tell dennis about this but before rockford can tell dennis dennis tells rockford hold on we're super busy i'm slammed clementi (sighs) woke up with new knowledge about the case he says there's hard drugs involved and there's a moment where beth and rockford just like look at each other like how did he know and then clementi is giving a press conference down the hall where he's saying i see 80 or maybe $85,000. I'm sure that that's relevant to this case. (laughs) Dennis also says that they followed up on his insight and that Rick Richards' secretary ID'd some known drug runners coming and talking to him, you know, just as part of his work calendar. And so this idea seems credible. Once the two of them are back looking at each other, Beth's like, how could he possibly know about this? Because this is the first of what you were talking about, where Clementi comes and publicly says, here are these things about the case that Rockford learned. Yes, I really enjoy the half-hearted attempt to explain what's happening, right? Because <laughs> they're lost as to why he does, but they're not ready to give up and admit that he has ESP. Mm-hmm. So they're like, it's a lucky guess. They almost go with that theory. They're, they're like, well, it's a hunch and ESP. Those are kind of the same thing, right? You know, and yeah, Beth uh, even says, uh, you can have a psychic who's not a fraud, right? Right. Yeah. That's possible, <laughs> right? Clementi ends this press conference uh, saying that they've recovered a car, found bloody, and that he's going to stay with it, sleep in it, learn whatever he can <laughs> from the psychic impressions of the, the car that they that the victims were probably killed in. And I believe this is where we get the first mention of Los Tunas Road. Mm. Rockford has been wrong-footed, but he wants to figure out what's going on. So he goes to the record company, but we start with super loud blasting music in this record producer's office with this guy who we shortly learn is Barry Silverstein giving this patter to uh, a woman who appears to be a secretary or assistant or something about what they're listening to. He calls Fleetwood Mac a garage band as part of it. Rockford comes in. They cut the music. He wants to talk to whoever hired him who's out of town, which is why he's now come to Barry. Barry is a good character. Yeah. I I, I love Barry. Lots of good mannerisms, very distinctive style. But one of the things I like about this particular scene and how it plays out is the beginning, Barry is kind of shoving Rockford off. Mm -hmm. Like He's like, oh, uh, he's not here. Oh, you're that cat. Yeah, he uses lots of... I'm a yeah. cool record producer guy. 70s lingo. And during the discussion, Rockford lets on that he's 
figuring out why they hired Rockford, right? They, their purpose for hiring Rockford was to catch this guy embezzling because they can't fire him for the fact that he's out of control with the drugs mm-hmm. that they're all using to, as he says, dope is the lubricant, right? Like they, they bribe people with drugs. They pay musicians in drugs. It's Yeah, I noted that line. It's great. Unfortunately, dope is the lubricant that keeps the great wheels turning. Yes. So... What I like about this is that you can see as Rockford lets on that he knows what's happening, mm. as they talk back and forth, he's, he's knowledgeable. Uh, he mentions payola, which is, uh, I, this is the thing that I had to look up. But this is the idea that you would pay disc jockeys under the table to play your music, right? Okay. Like it was a, a bit of a scandal where everyone's being bribed in the music industry to make hits happen. So that's a specific thing? Because I was just, I just thought yeah. it was like the general term of like, oh, payola, just like paying people off. But does that come from this? It's specific to the uh, music industry. You can look it up on Wikipedia <laughs> and find an entire entry on it but it's an actual um actual investigations they actually had congressional investigations into this because it's they were trying to influence a market Mm -hmm. right it you know despite the fact that it's just rock and roll it's a lot of money and if any other industry behaved that way we would be up in arms Mm -hmm. so you have payola but they're doing their payola with drugs with cocaine Mm -hmm. and, and dope and whatnot right uh so rick was in over his head with that they wanted to fire him they couldn't do it for the real reason, so they brought Rockford in to discover just cause. The thing that I was I wanted to make note of was that this character, Barry here, as he realizes that Rockford's hip to it, he warms to Rockford. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of neat to watch as the scene progresses. He starts off as keeping Rockford at a distance, but by the end, he treats Rockford as like, oh yeah, no, we're on the same page here. Well, I have a theory here is that he wants to get Rockford on his side a little bit for reasons that we'll discover later. But where this turns to helping Rockford is that he wants to ID the guys who beat him up. And he says, one of them is quite the drummer and I got to start somewhere. Yeah. So he describes the guy with the earring and Barry's like, oh, yeah, Ray Ochoa. You know, he's in this really crappy band that we couldn't sell their records. But he gives them, he says, find the, like, the musician's finding service or something like that. So it does give him a lead to finding him and also mentions on his way out uh, to his doctor's appointment, which is actually an important detail. Important, yes. Ray wrote a love song about Allison Curry, you know, obsessed with her. Just some gopher that we had employed here. Yeah. But he basically wishes Rockford good luck and they end with a... a cool 70s handshake <laughs> also important mm-hmm. and then he says shine on yeah rockford uh leaves the record studio in his car notices he's being followed and in a very basic maneuver turns the tables and starts following the car that was following him yeah up into the hills he takes up a position to see the house where that car ends up pulling into and after a little bit of waiting sees Clementi and the woman who hired him to go find her brother get out of a car yes. together and then go into the house. What? What? what, what? <laughs> no wonder she paid him. It was all a scam. So we've seen this dramatic Clementi's running some kind of scam. Who could have imagined it? Uh, what's what's fun about this is not that he's running some kind of scam. It's the depth to which he's mm-hmm. running it. He's not Angel, where Angel would just keep changing his story up. Right. 
to get the the best thing going. This guy is doing a lot of work to look like he does and and this throwing around, you know, enough Presumably money. Presumably a good amount of money, yeah. Yeah. We cut to Rockford helping Rocky change a light bulb. They're <laughs> on both sides of a ladder. This might be my favorite making the subtext the text scene of all of the episodes <laughs> we've talked about so far. Getting back to our director, this seemed similar to me of some scenes from those other episodes where yeah. it's a very dramatic angle for the shot and there's a very stark light darkness kind of contrast to it yeah rockford is telling rocky and us as the audience clementi has has had him followed and has been learning these things as he's been learning them so he thinks that they wanted him away from the trailer and away from his car in order to plant bugs so they're on this ladder rocky's reaching <laughs> up and replacing a light bulb and he's screwing it into the socket and rockford's laying out like they wanted me away from my trailer. They sent me up to Topanga for no reason. And he literally says, come to think of it. And that's when Rocky turns in the light and it turns on. <laughs> so it's just the light bulb literally goes on over Rockford's head. Oh, it's so silly and yet so satisfying. Yeah. It's just, it's cheesy and I love it. It's one of those things where you, you lay the groundwork mm -hmm. and the audience knows that it's coming or they can see it coming if they're paying attention. And it's satisfying when, when it does because you're just like... Oh. If it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have noticed. They would have just been talking on a ladder. Yeah. But since it happened, it made it obvious and satisfying. But yeah, so Rockford, come to think of it, climbs down the ladder, goes and checks his car, and sure enough, finds a bug that was set in his car. And so that's why his glasses were not where they usually are, because the guy right. who put the bug in his car moved them and then forgot to move them back. So you, you mentioned subtext. I want to talk a little bit about the subtext of this here. Uh, I mean, it's easy to read in the way he's reaching up underneath the, the mm -hmm. dash of his car, moving the steering wheel so he can do it. I, I thought of this as a extension of his body. Mm -hmm. This is somebody looking for lumps, right? <laughs> this is, this is, yeah. he's up in the nether regions, uh, trying to find, uh, evidence of, of a cancer. I, I don't know. I, I like the fact that he would know that there's a bug there that he would find something and be like, that doesn't belong under yeah. the dash of my car. Cause I would not be able to do that. Yeah. He just finds it by feel and just pulls out this box with all these wires coming yeah. out. Yeah. These aren't, uh, you know, mission impossible, little tiny devices. Like these are what the actual thing would have been, which is like a big clunky yeah. box full of electronics. It's good. And now we have kind of definitive proof that Clementi is, as he yeah. says, using him as a stalking horse. Yes. Oh, that's another one. He says what the p politicians call a stalking mm -hmm. horse. That is when somebody underneath the politician goes and sort of puts forth policy before the politician does to kind of test the waters. My favorite example in recent times of this is, I feel, I mean, I, I got no evidence here, but is Joe Biden saying, well, of course, same-sex marriage is okay. Mm -hmm. And all of the nation suddenly going, yes, of course it is. Even though when Obama was running for election there, he was really, you know, hedging about all of yeah. that. Like, And then Obi Biden just said, yeah, of course. Biden, in his position of vice president, is able to do that. And then if, if all of America was like, no, then the administration could have pulled back and said, Biden doesn't speak for mm. us. That's the si sort of situation that Rockford's referring to right, here. Right, yeah. He's being used to test the waters, to poke around. Yeah. 
and then Clemente's reaping the benefits without having to put yes. himself into danger uh, and also making it look like he's psychic, right? Like he's just coming up yeah. with all these brilliant insights through the power of psychic vibrations. So Rockford wants to talk to Clemente about this. He tracks him down at a garage where we have a little voiceover inventory of the investigation of this car that was found at Las Tunis Road. The fingerprints are all of the two people who disappeared. The jack and the wrench, the tire iron, are missing. But the spare tire is still there, so it wasn't yeah. changed. Those pieces are just gone. But this scene has a lot going on. Yes. I'll go through through it quick, and then we can go into what, what you find the most interesting. Rockford comes in. He's very snarky. He wants to talk to Clementi alone. There's this minor character who's doing the actual investigation. So it's, this character is played by James Hong. Yes. Listeners may may know from uh, from Big, Big Trouble in Little China, <laughs> among other things. A long and illustrious career, including being a filmmaker in mm-hmm. his own right. Um, uh, but yeah, Lopan, the villain from... From, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, so he's this kind of CSI style guy. He has this line where he says, we're just doing this big job for Interpol and we're all exhausted and doing the best we can. I think yeah. the implication here is not really stated, but my read was that this is a crew of people that Clementi pays to look like they're investigating something. Right. I, You know, that's a good question because... Yeah, because he gets miffed, and when when Rockford starts giving him crap, yeah, he gets miffed, and he's like, "I'll bill you for our time," and stalks off with his clipboard. There's two ways I think you can read that. Is one, uh, as you say, is that this is possibly more theatrics, or it it could be that they're just freelance forensics experts, you know, and that that they're not particularly good. Right. He's just saving money <laughs> by whoever he's he's hiring. He's clearly not a professional who's going to be giving a bunch of evidence that we're going to need to know later. Uh, he's kind of here just to right. be a foil for, for, for Rockford to bounce off of here. Because Rockford observes that there's these big scratches on the bumper. Looks like something was pried off, something heavy, probably something heavier than a bicycle rack, maybe a motorcycle rack. And then he makes some other plausible explanations for things about the car that make our investigator look like a, like a doofus. Rockford pulls Clemente aside and is like, we're going to talk. Now I know that you're a fraud. Right. I figured out that you hired this PI, Roland Foote, to follow me. And that's how you know where I've been going and when I'm away from my trailer. I found the bug in my car. There's bugs in my trailer. I think that you have an informant at the police department, which is how you keep knowing about internal police department things. And then you're telling the media about me to get the criminals on my case so that you can swoop in, go on the lecture circuit about the successful case that you've solved. And I'm the one who, uh, I think he says, and then I need a plumber to feed me my lunch. Yes. <laughs> Clementi denies everything, says that Rockford, he's a disbeliever. That's why he isn't seeing the right. benefits of what Clementi does. Rockford is extremely angry. He does He does do the lifting his fist thing. And he, he basically threatens Clementi and is like, you're going to come with me now mm-hmm. to figure this out. And that's the end of the scene. But yeah, packed into that are a lot of kind of little things. Right. Okay, so I got two favorite bits to this scene. Uh, one of them is that uh, I just an absolute appreciation for how difficult these sorts of scenes are, where one character is absolutely in the right and is forcibly and directly confronting the other character with their falsehoods, and the other character is not breaking underneath mm-hmm. it. He's, he's maintaining that he's a psychic. He's not backpedaling as swiftly as, say, Angel would. Well, he doesn't really backpedal, right? Right. He he has an answer for everything. And it's 
Um, it's very smooth and it's well done. And he doesn't seem flustered by the fact that, I mean, he does seem flustered. He doesn't seem as flustered as perhaps you would hope as Rockford. He, he's ready to deal with this probably because he has dealt with this. You get the feeling that he has a set of contingencies for when someone comes in to kind of bust his operation. Yeah. He made, maintains kind of an aloof authority in the situation that would otherwise be hard to do. And because he does it, even though there's no other audience except for us, you feel or at least I did this sort of desperate grind where Rockford's like, you're not going to win him through truth and logic. Right. You're not going to. And that's great. I think that that's a well done scene and it's a hard scene to do. And I think they did that really well. And then the other thing that I, I, so, I mean, I've mentioned this a few times in the past. It's the swell spoon, which is from red harvest, which inspired a bunch of things that we know like, uh, yo Jimbo and fistful mm-hmm. of dollars and, and all that. A noir detective or a Ronin or a cowboy or Conan, you know, whatever you have, walks into a situation, throws their weight around and makes themselves known to see what comes out of it. That's something that Rockford has done. He, he occasionally will mm. do that, like using this sort of yourself as bait. Mm. I love that Clementi's way of doing this is just using Rockford. Yeah, to throw him out when he doesn't want to be put into the the spotlight. It is such a trope in the genre to just go and just stir things up and see what happens and then solve the problem based on how people react to it. That I, I just love that he's he keeps maintains his distance by having Rockford do that dirty work without Rockford knowing it. And he's obviously practiced at it you get the feeling yeah. that he's he's left a bunch of burned pis behind him yes. on his, <laughs> his road to fame well from this the end of the scene we cut to ray ochoa slamming clementi up against a wall and yelling at him about how he wants his money such a good cut he's uh he's going crazy about this money rockford yeah. brings clementi to the gang to tell yeah. them that he's a fraud and that rockford doesn't know anything about the money Ray, uh, who still seems to be going through some kind of withdrawal. Even more so, I would say. He's very twitchy and and uh, wet. He calls Clementi, you piece of chicken. <laughs> Rockford does manage to break through to him with logic, though. He says, look, if I had $80,000 or that much cocaine, why would I be here now mm-hmm. trying to get you off my back? Right. Ray sees the logic, but then Ray wants the cash and uh, Clementi's flash watch he wants to get something out of yes. it. Yes. Clementi is a, a consummate coward here. Uh, he does <laughs> ask if he can keep some cash for emergencies. Rockford just kind of watches while uh, Ray takes all of his money. Rockford does ask Ray about Allison Curry. And we get another element to the, the mystery. Allison wasn't just his girl. That she was everybody's girl at the record studio. And that Barry Silverstein went crazy when she left him and ended up going out with Rick. So we get an element of Barry wasn't totally straight with Rockford earlier. Right. I do have one question when he asks for money for emergencies. My assumption at that point was that he he didn't get it, that Ray threw his wallet back at him and that was it. But I think maybe he did give him a little money for emergencies, which we'll see in a little bit. So from here we cut to... uh... Rockford and Clementi in Rocky's truck. They're, he's driving Rocky's truck around. Yeah. Maybe just because he's pretty sure there's no bug in it. 
Yeah, I think that probably is the case. And he says that we're going to go to the police and you're going to tell them everything that you just told those guys. Clemente's like, okay, fine, fine. He kind of has this air of, okay, you win. But he says, just tell me one thing as this all comes to a close. Do you really think those gouges on the back of the bumper are significant? And Rockford gives him this, like, I'm not telling you smile, which is great. Yeah. I'm not going to give you anything. But then they stop at a stoplight and Clemente dips out of the, the truck, runs across the road, evades traffic, uh, and evades Rockford, who has also tried to run after yes. him, and then manages to duck duck behind some other cars and get into a cab and directs the cab to follow Rockford. Yes. So he does have some some subterfuge skills, this Clementi. It's not just a little con that he's doing here. He's he's practiced. Rockford goes ahead, now that Clementi's not with him anymore, apparently decides to go ahead and try and suss out some of the actual mystery. This is an interesting ep- episode structurally because we have two concurrent mysteries we have what happened to rick and allison they disappeared and we all assume that they've been murdered but we don't actually know yeah so there's that mystery which is what the police are actually investigating and then we have the mystery of how is clementi keeping ahead of rockford so we're kind of well on our way to solving that mystery we kind of have figured out his methods and now it's a matter of executing on turning the tables on him somehow as rockford viewers we imagine that's where that's going or at least i do yeah but the mystery of what happened to the disappeared people is still outstanding. So Rockford goes to, I guess, the scene of the crime, uh, Las Tunas Road, where this car was found. He starts snooting around. Clemente's cab follows him up there, and then he gets out, presumably paying him with the emergency money. (laughs) I had this moment where I was like, what is he paying him with? Oh, that's funny. Did Ray actually give him a couple extra bucks just I wouldn't put it past him to have money hidden somewhere that's not in his wallet. Yeah. Uh, So there's there's a big sign that says soft shoulder, which is relevant um and he and there's all this sand on the side of the of the shoulder Mm -hmm. he finds the jack and the lug wrench in the sand he then kind of starts going down the slope he finds uh, a motorcycle in the woods and keeps sliding down the slope in further investigation clemente's following him he hears Clemente, hides behind a tree, and then lights him up with a with a with his flashlight. There's great tension in here. Yeah, I'm going through this quick, but this whole scene is filmed in a way that is a willy won't he who's following who kind of. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's good. It's really good. But they do come together with uh, where Rockford discovers him. They have a little bit of banter. And uh, I think Clemente says something like, oh, you scared me. And Rockford looks at him and Clemente responds with, what are you looking at me spooky for? You think you're dealing with a kid? <laughs> Good lines. And he's like, that's amazing. You found all this just from those those scratches on the bumper? He seems genuinely impressed with Rockford's in- investigative skill. There's hints of that, I think, throughout the episode that he has picked Rockford as a fall guy and Rockford foils him from time to time and you could see his respect for him kind of grow and it's also helpful that that respect for him may be able to sweeten Rockford's disposition towards him and he might be able to get some information out of him so there's this it's kind of a nice complex character growth not character relationship growth there's kind of a a juicy question of how much is he playing Rockford and how much is he genuinely like respectful of his skills and his you know what he brings to the table that said, sure enough, they find they we see uh, two sets of feet sticking out of the bushes. They have found the bodies of these two uh, poor people who were murdered, and they turn to go back up the slope. And this is kind of a weird moment. Clementi is climbing, then he falls, and he just like rolls back down the slope. Rockford yeah. goes and looks at him, and then just turns around and leaves, and just leaves him there. <laughs> 
this is kind of important for an element of the plot, but in the moment, it's a little bit like Rockford is just like, eh, screw this guy. Honestly, I would, but it's a thing that, that happens... Well, we'll get into it. We cut to daylight. A bunch of cops are up on the on the street and someone's saying, thanks, Jim. You broke the case. Rockford is getting some kind of kudos for uh, for actually helping out. There is a bunch of banter Mm -hmm. through this scene. So this is very much a very fun to watch kind of thing. So Jim's there. Clementi's there with like an ice pack on his head, like because he hit his head or whatever. (laughs) Becker and Chapman are there. When Rockford's like, so where's this body of water that you said they were going to be by? Yeah. This was something from the first scene. Clementi originally was like, I know that they're going to be found by a body of water. And this is a trope of psychic claims. It's going to happen on a day that ends in Y kind of thing. Like any populated area (laughs) is going to be near a body of water of some kind. So anyway, he points to a water tank. It's like, that's the body of water. And they have this whole go around of like, that's not a body of water. What would you define as? How much water do you need? How many gallons would you say? a body of water is and it's fun that like even chapman gets into it i would say about more than fifty thousand. chapman also warns everyone about how there's a bunch of poison oak and everyone's like ah poison oak yes rockford points out that the body of water prediction is one that can't go wrong and that's when clementi turns and starts accusing rockford of all these things he does this very skillful fact judo to start casting aspersions on rockford because rockford started calling him a fraud probably not fact judo it's probably fact ah that's true he does mention that he is a master of aikido earlier in the episode yes so yeah he says he was following rockford he saw him go straight to the bodies without even searching he has poison oak on his neck rockford's been scratching his neck he has a, a, a red inflamed area he certainly didn't pick that up overnight. Where did that come from? This is great because the diagnosis of it is from Becker. I love Becker's physicality. Uh, he reaches out and just doesn't grab. He touches Rockford's neck. I mean, just think about that for a moment. First of all, it's yeah. poison oak. It's just it's just great that he's comfortable doing that. I mean, I've, I've mentioned in previous episodes, there's something about Becker and touching people's necks. It's just another one of those moments. Yep, that's poison oak. I know poison oak when I touch it on a man's neck. So now Clementi's saying that Rockford, I knew he was he was involved with this in some way. He's the one who hid the bodies in the first place. And that's when Rockford's right. like, this guy's a fraud. He confessed, like, in front of Ray Ochoa. He lives at this thing. <laughs> and Clementi comes back with, well, of course I've confessed. He had a knife. They were threatening me. I would have said anything, like anyone would have. And it comes down to Chapman asking Rockford, did you take him there against his will? And there's just mm-hmm. this long pause because he did. Yep. One of the few times where Rockford just caught straight out with a, no, you're right. I did take him there against his will. Therefore, what he's saying is valid from that yep. point of view. Uh, Rockford's like, uh, I'm going to go home and get some rest. And Chapman says, nope, you're going to come downtown. And Clementi <laughs> just has this eating grin on his face in the background, like right at the end of the scene. He just has this big like, yeah, yeah got him facial expression uh they go downtown but there is not enough evidence to book rockford on suspicion of murder becker comes in at the end of the scene with the coroner's report that they have been dead about two weeks and that sure enough there is a contact missing <laughs> that's from allison so good the left one so this is the next moment of like maybe there is something to this clementi guy what i love about it is just how frustratingly small of a thread people are holding on to to make the psychic work. It's not like we as the audience are like, well, maybe, but it's more like, oh, god damn it. Because we as the audience, we know. We just know. It's not hidden from us. But like the people in the, in the scene are like, well, that's weird. Hmm, that contact. He mentioned it. 
Uh, so Rockford's going around with Beth trying to figure out where he's been where he c- could possibly have gotten Poison Oak. Because he thinks maybe it was when he shook Clementi's hand, but Clementi doesn't have it. Right. And he hasn't, there's only one spot where he's even been around like nature in the last month and there's no Poison Oak there. There's a great Rockford Beth moment here where, you know, she points out that you need to have physical contact with it. She's like, well... Have you been in physical contact with anyone? The implication that Rockford picks up is that she's wondering if he yeah. slept with someone who has poison oak. But she's like, I, like I'm not looking for salacious details. I just want to know. Like maybe you borrowed someone's clothes or shook someone's hand. Yeah, exactly. Beth is like, no, we're trying to solve this. We're trying to keep you out of prison. But talking about the handshake reminds him of, he's like, who have I shook hands with? Then he remembers about the doctor. Yeah. He connects these dots like, oh, the other person I've shook hands with is Silverstein. He has a little bit of patter about it and ends with shine on. Mm-hmm. So we cut to the parking garage or basement of a of club or something. Rockford is waiting for Barry to come out out he's tracked him down from breaking into his office and looking at his social calendar (laughs) barry is apparently uh late for yoko's birthday party (laughs) barry gets into his car which is this little yellow dick mobile um (laughs) yeah (laughs) and rockford leans into the window and kind of lays out this so the doctor that you went to i know he's a dermatologist those bodies were found in a patch of poison oak you know you're the only person whose hand i've shook who went to a dermatologist like that kind of thing barry's like no i don't know what you're talking about what's all this patter and then he hits the gas and shoots away from rockford and then starts trying to run him down yes in this parking garage you kind of see the pressure build on his face it's a pretty good good moment where you kind of see him start panicking with all these Mm -hmm. details that rockford keeps building up he tries to run him down rockford gets a little bit sideswiped he does a he rolls away from the car and then he finds a big empty glass jug in a dumpster and throws it into the yeah. windshield of Barry's car, which sends him crashing into another car. Very dramatic. Yeah, it's a brutal crash. This is in an era where, I mean, I don't remember specifically if Barry's wearing a seatbelt, but a lot of people just didn't. Had a moment of like, did Rockford just kill a man? But he did not. Barry's dazed, I think. And uh, now that he's panicked and then had this suddenly happen to him, he basically confesses to Rockford. He starts kind of crying and he says that he didn't want to kill them. He ruined her. I didn't want to kill them. Yeah. And Rockford, uh, in that weird Rockford, like, well, now that we know what happened, I can kind of see your angle. Yeah. Which is something we haven't seen since some of our earlier episodes, I think. Like in The Countess, he kind of does this. No one ever wants to kill them. This is good stuff with Rockford because it's he was in prison for a while. He's got lots of shady friends mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so, he, yeah, like you said, like once once we've hit the, the heart of it and we got the answer, then he can be sympathetic. And it's almost like, you know, pulling yeah. a tooth, right? Like you got to do the tooth pulling. And then afterwards you can be like, I know, I know it hurts. Let's get you some ice cream. This is the last thing you want after a tooth is pulled. So that's a bad example. Uh, but now we have a confession to this murder and we go into the first of our two endings for this episode. Yes. <laughs> which is delivered by the device of Rock. Rockford, Rocky, and Beth are in Rockford's trailer uh, watching the TV where Chapman is giving a statement about it and he lays out the whole thing. Chapman, very uncomfortable yes. in front of the fa- camera. That's so good. It's very good. And it's not only uncomfortable in front of the camera, but also uncomfortable with a case that I think he didn't see going this way. Yeah, he, they had no, no part in solving it. So the basic facts that they lay out from the confession, Barry was, was jealous of them. He got drunk. He called them to pick him up. They did. They had a drunken altercation. It escalated. He beat them to death with a golf club, which is a horrible <laughs> detail. And and the rest we know. And then there's a follow-up press conference with Clementi 
where he takes minimal credit for helping. Yeah. Rocky is scandalized that they don't even say that say anything about Jim, but Jim is just happy to have it all behind him. As long as they're out of my life is the the line. It feels like a Rockford Files ending because it's the family gathered in the trailer to just watch a, a, a slight recap and the end. And then we get like a little button line or something. We even get the joke about uh, the visual joke where Rocky gets a beer and walks by and just clearly Rockford thinks he has earned that beer and it was coming to him and it, it does not. Uh, but But we're not quite at the end because Rockford still wants to know. What happened to that $80,000? That hasn't come up. No one knows where it is. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that Clementi knows something about it. So we cut to Rockford talking to Dennis about this $80,000. I guess it's implied like whether anything Silverstein said has anything to do with the money. Right. And he says that Barry said that he saw a safe deposit box key on Richard's neck. He thinks he saw, but it's not. It wasn't there on the bodies. So Rockford thinks that Clementi took it. This is where he lays out, also, this is how the contact thing happened, because Clementi was alone with the bodies when Rockford left him at the bottom of that hill. Yes. He he fakes his own fainting spell to doctor the scene as much as he can. And probably took the safe deposit box key. So he thinks that Clementi took it, uh, and Dennis is kind of like, look, it's all over, just leave it alone. And he says, you think that that guy's going to leave $80,000 tax-free just sitting around? I want to nail this suede shoe hustler. <laughs> But he's uh, giving a TV interview or something. Uh, So they're off to Beard the Lion in his den, if you will. And that's when we get to the real villain of this piece. Oh, Casey Patterson. (laughs) This whole discussion takes place inside the police department. And as soon as they leave the scene, uh, a woman who's working there sitting at a desk picks up a phone. And from the moment she picks up the phone. It was her. It was her all along. Oh, and she calls the TV station and says that, you know, tell Clementi that Casey Patterson from the police department is calling for him. Yeah, he'll want to hear from me. And I'm like, yeah, she's oh. been she's been the, the mole all along. Uh, not someone I recognize from other episodes, I think, just for this story. Yeah. All right. Rockford and Dennis going into the back of a TV studio as Clementi is on live TV making some final predictions about this case now that it's all been wrapped up and the culprit has been found. Yes. He sees a safe deposit box. No, no, it's a shoebox. No, it's a safety deposit box. Uh, <laughs> it has all this patter. But he, before he can be confronted with the fact that he knows where this safety deposit box is by the police, yet again, one step ahead of Rockford, and he says on live TV, the branch, the number, and he thinks the money's going to be in that yeah. box. Rockford just stone-faced applauds the audacity of <laughs> yeah. this man. This is ending two and a half, This right? is like Lord of the Rings, actually. This is ending two. It could just end on that. Yeah, because it's the slow clap, and it's a focus on his face. It's classic, again, classic Rockford Files ending, but we're not done. No, my friends. Three months later. Yes. One of the few times that we have a big time jump in a Rockford episode. Yeah. This is more of an epilogue than anything else. But yeah, it's three months later. Rockford and Beth are going into a, a press reception and signing for Roman Clemente's new book, Crime and the Third Eye, a psychic's notebook. Yes. Rockford cuts the line and hands Clemente not something to be signed, but rather an injunction to stop selling the book. As Clemente never asked permission to include Jim Rockford's name in his book, they have back and forth where Clemente, facing an actual legal thing that he can't bullshit 
his way out of. Yeah. No, but you come off great. I give you all the credit. You came up with all the things. And Robert's like, my business depends on anonymity. You publish my name. No one wants to hire me. And he's like, do you know what this is going to do to me? 250,000 copies have already been published. And we have to recall them all. Yeah. And he ends with the, the great line. Hey, you're the psychic. I would have thought you'd have seen this coming, Swami. I would like to point out, as much as I oppose the villain in this episode, when he said 250,000 have already been published, the publisher in me. Oh. Yeah, so what what's great about this, I think, is that Rockford gets nothing out of this. This is a purely vindictive ending. This is just getting his own back. Yeah, and it's, I don't want to say a rarity. Uh, those sorts of endings are delicious yeah. gems. The fact that not every episode ends that way makes these feel good. Because Clementi gets his comeuppance, right? He's he's treated Rockford shabbily. He's gotten him into trouble that he didn't want. And at the end of the day, and he's a fraud. And Rockford, yeah. for all the cons that he pulls, he's not a fraudster. We've talked right. about this uh, in other episodes in more detail, but he has a line between lying to a criminal in order to pursue an investigation and defrauding an innocent person or a person who doesn't deserve it. So he's finally, right. he's able to turn the tables on, on Clementi uh, in an extremely satisfying way. And we end the episode with the big Garner smile. So good. Yeah, that's the, the end of the episode. Fun episode. Like I said at the onset, I have a particular anxiety about this sort of fiction for fear that the psychic will get away with it. I'd seen this episode long ago, but I couldn't remember how it ended or whatever. And it's perfectly within the realm of the Rockford Files for him to have gotten away with it. Right. Like Rockford being the only one who knows how he did it, but for some reason he can't prove it or, or something like that. But uh, it's a very satisfying ending. It was a nice roller coaster in that realm mm -hmm. for me. Lots of good small moments with uh, characters. Like, they had a pretty full cast of regulars that weren't clogging up the, the episode, right? Like, it was largely Rockford and Clementi. Uh, but you would get enough of Becker and Rocky. Like, every time Rocky, Beth, mm -hmm. and Becker were on screen, they just, just nail uh, those characters and their relationship with Rockford well. And Chapman. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode. Super fun. Very uh, enjoyable to watch for the interaction between Robert Weber, the guy who played Clementi, and James Garner. Yeah. They have great chemistry. They they do this in mm -hmm. a number of episodes. Uh, uh, Weber's usually the bad guy in the Rockford season, so we can, we can look forward to seeing more of him. He's a, He's got a great face for a bad guy. Good episode. I love the two mysteries and how they move at different rates. Yeah. That keeps the pace of it very snappy and you don't get bogged down in one. The only kind of disservice I think it does is that it took me two watchings to kind of figure out everything happening with the car. And also to right. be like, wouldn't the police have found these things? Because they found the car and all this stuff is just there. Yeah, yeah. So I think the implication is that because Clementi's on it, the police are not investigating the same way they would. Yeah, he's leading them astray without them uh, knowing it. He's not yeah. doing it deliberately. He just, he's being flashy. and So that's kind of implied, but never really spelled out. The The joy of the episode keeps you moving along to where that doesn't really seem to stick out. But on the second viewing, yeah. I was like, I could have used one line just to telegraph that, uh, to fir firm up that little bit. But overall, super fun. Uh, nice to see Rockford in a con game that's not a con game, right? Like Clementi's a con artist, but he's not yeah. running a game that can be broken or sprung kind of the same way. Right. Shockingly, another recommendation for viewing this Rockford Files. <laughs> yeah. It's a little surprising from us. Cool. So I think there's a lot of 
fun little things to maybe dive into uh, about the the structural stuff and also some of the historical stuff about this episode. So we will take our break and then we'll come back and go into all of that fun stuff. See you then. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about Swords and Sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 Today. We just got done talking about <laughs> the Oracle War Cashmere Suit, which you know because you just mm-hmm. listened to mm-hmm. us talk about it. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the lessons that we learned from it. This may be a, a slight departure from our uh, usual format. We're going to talk a little bit about some historical lessons here, right? Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about how to work it into your fiction mm-hmm. and narrative as you play at the table or as you write your great American novel. Apologies, your great novel. Your great novel, regardless of nationality. Yeah. Yeah, um, this episode had some things that just made me go like, huh, how does that actually work? Because Rockford Files does such a good job at having this grounded in lived reality feel that uh, when things are a little more fantastic, it makes me wonder, like, does this have precedent in things that were actually happening? And like we talked about in uh, the first Gear Jammers episode, how they'll use things going on at the time as character seeds and character motivations sometimes. So I was wondering about this trope of the psychic uh, investigator, which is a fictional thing. There's plenty of stories and TV shows and stuff like that. But the question of like, is this a thing that law enforcement would actually be doing at the time? Or is there any historical precedent? And I wasn't able to get super deep into it, but it appears that no, this is not a thing that the cops do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is reassuring which is good i mean well go on you, tell, tell me what you got here yeah so specifically i was wondering if there was a specific case that this might have been referencing or but as far as i could tell this is just something that's kind of in the air especially in in the 70s there were a couple high profile psychics or self-professed psychics including uh gene dixon who ended up being like the astrologer to nancy reagan uh later in life and yeah. She had some pretty high profile predictions, including that uh, that a president would be assassinated in the year that JFK was assassinated. So she was active during this time. Ingo Swan was a, a psychic who sold himself to not literally, but but operated in relation with like the CIA and FBI and was part of these experiments to try and verify whether psychic phenomena was really able to be used and weaponized. Um, he he apparently had a, had a number of, here's a thing I can do with my psychic powers during the 70s, between 72 and 79. A more modern touchpoint would be a woman named Sylvia Brown, who has some pop culture, I think, relevance uh, or knowledge. I didn't really know about yeah, her until yeah. I did the research, but it seems like, especially in the 90s, she was a big, a big deal. 
I think she's probably the root of my anxiety about these sorts of stories. So that's interesting. I, yeah. So my question for you is, is how, how did, how did you encounter uh, Sylvia Brown? Cause I really didn't know about her until I did some of this research. When you started on this, I typed her name into it to find out. Cause I, I remember her, but I don't remember when in my life I remember her. And I don't know how law enforcement treated her, but certainly uh, media enjoyed yes. the angle of having a psychic. And she was involved in cases that had to do with people who had disappeared. And she would say things like they had died when they mm -hmm. did not. It, it was really frustrating to see either families fall for it or just the general public or the media just give her more attention than, than what is deserved when somebody's mm -hmm. life is on the line, when it's important that we pay attention to what's happening and, and not get distracted by this and that it's clearly a publicity money-making stunt for mm -hmm. the psychic, right? Like this is using somebody's misery to mm -hmm. give yourself a... Yeah, one of her highest profile things did literally involve the body of water thing. Yeah. That's just such a basic bedrock idea of this kind of scam. Ironically, Rockford files are very prophetic. But yeah, so the the official line, as far as I can tell, it, it varies slightly, but law enforcement doesn't hire psychics. Anyone yeah. can make a statement, and that's usually what like the sleight of hand is in reporting on these things, is that someone who says, yeah. I have psychic powers, I know what's happening in this, I have made a statement to the police to this effect. They'll take any statement, but that doesn't mean you actually know right. anything about the case or that you're working with the police. Yeah, like, are they even taking it serious in any way? That's kind of the media trick, I guess, is in covering these kinds of things. Yeah. So, as it turns out, this does not seem to be rooted in any specific incident or detective or case or psychic. But I think this idea of high-profile people claiming to have some kind of ability to tap into the psyche and powers, you know, beyond the ken of mortal man, like, it's just part of our culture. And during that era, I think it really was a part of the culture, too. The, I mean, it ebbs and flows, and around that time, it definitely was a, a moment where there was attempts to legitimize, you know, you get the term pseudoscience, where they try and say this is this is a scientific pursuit of some form or another. Ingo Swan's thing was he would, I can, I will disrupt the magnetic field of this electromagnet with the power right. of my mind. See, it's science, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think that occasionally that sort of stuff Rockford bumps up against, which is interesting. Like uh, there'll be episodes where he'll, somebody will just talk about their chakras and he'll, he'll kind of roll his eyes at it. His job is to be skeptical of mm -hmm. everything, including this sort of stuff, but also obviously skeptical of money deal that's too good to be true or, you know. So in this story, it's used to good effect to have the, the charlatan who is using this claim to gather fame for themselves. But I think there's yeah. also an interesting angle you could take because I think some of the implication in, in reading about some of these other self-professed psychics, and I'm sure this is true, is that if someone really believes in what they're doing, how does that change the nature of the story? Right. Because this would be a different kind of episode and I think the character would be much more sympathetic if they truly believed yeah. in what they were doing and what they could do. There's an interesting challenge in that. All right, so we have 
Clementi, who is a competent con man and a competent detective. I mean, like, he he, he has a comment about how he and Rockford would have made a great team. And he's not lying. They, they would have been amazing together. So when you're doing a story like this, you want to decide who's in on it. In, in this story, Rockford knows the truth. Rockford's friends suspect the truth. Uh, Clementi knows the truth. And the audience knows the truth. If you change it so that Clementi do- believes it, he's a believer, and he then I think the interesting decision to make there is whether you want the mm-hmm. audience to know the truth. Because we talked about how this episode could have gone, instead of the tension being about Rockford finding the evidence to prove to everyone else, it's being, right. is he psychic or not? And that would be a different kind of story. There were a couple of those little details to keep the characters guessing about, like, how did he know that? Yeah. Maybe he does have some kind of ability that to the audience were clearly red herrings or were clearly yeah. going to be proved wrong. But those could be audience questions instead of character questions. Right. I have a personal disposition against those kinds of stories, partly because I think that very often the evidence that they are a psychic gets really tortured. Uh-huh. Or the way it's presented gets really tortured if you're trying to keep the audience in the dark. You don't have to have a psychic involved to do this. But what I'm saying is where you want to misdirect the audience, you end up having a bunch of characters and people behave in a way to make it seem like something is true that you'll later reveal isn't. But then once you reveal it isn't, them behaving that way makes no sense whatsoever. We've talked in a previous episode about how the Rockford Files is pretty good at this, usually, where yeah. once you learn the truth, it doesn't change how the characters would have acted because they have a different motivation. Exactly. And I think with this kind of story, that danger is really present. Right, because in this kind of story, you can't just change that and have the rest of it remain the same, right? Like, if Clementi really believes in what he's doing, then why is he hiring a private investigator? There needs to be a different reason for that. Why is that uh, mole person in the police giving him information? That has to be different. So it requires restructuring the whole uh, the whole pyramid, I guess. Like, how is he getting the information? If he believes in, in what he knows, but Rockford is still the source of it, then that means is there another person that is that's playing both of them, right? And what's their motivation? Or how do you solve that question? Right. But this episode comes down heavily enough on the side of this guy is a con man that yeah. that makes it easier to sort out the motivations. And they telegraph it right from the beginning. Yeah. Which is easy. It's the Rockford files. So, you know, we we're there through Rockford for most of it, his attitude towards them is going to be the audience's attitude towards them. Um, in terms of constructing a game scenario with this in it, I think it's an inter- interesting question also because you can approach it from the direction that this episode does, which is your protagonists get bound up into someone who claims that they have these powers yeah, you know, and they're being used. How do they make that work? How do they turn the tables or how do they find out the truth? You could also go from the angle of the so-called psychic being the protagonist, right? Like, that could be a a fun game of, like, how do you keep this con rolling for whatever the character motivations are? Um, It can be for good reasons or bad reasons, but how do you make everyone think that you have powers or you know things that other people don't know? And then it gets complicated in a world, say, where some people do and some people don't. What happens if people claim that they do, but they don't, and vice versa? I had uh, an experience with that years ago. 2000, 2001, 2002, when we were originally running uh, Dread at conventions and it was at Gen Con and uh, we played the, a Victorian setting and one of the characters was 
the uh, psychic to the queen. And the first question on their questionnaire was, aside from yourself, who else knows you're a fraud? Mm -hmm. Uh, Fortunately, this player was really into it. And I was running the game. I was the host of the game. They wanted to take me aside just to tell me that they were going to make a prediction. And they wanted it to look to the other players as if I was telling them secret information. (laughs) And then they'd come back to the table and they would pull a block. In Dread, you pull blocks from a Jenga tower in order to to succeed at things. So she would pull a block from the Jenga tower to imply to her other players that she succeeded (laughs) at predicting the future and then would make something up. And, oh, they ate that Hmm. up. I mean, it's it's a trick you can't do twice. You have now ruined this for everyone. Yeah, well, everyone listening (laughs) to this particular podcast. Right, right. But if you if you have friends and you want to run dread for them, don't let them listen to this episode until you've done that trick. And then mm-hmm. yeah. that's fun because we're actually doing the sleight of hand, which is difficult sometimes to do at the table. The other way to do it is to say that you're doing it, right? And leaving it, letting us play to that happening. Play with that dramatic irony that your information is wrong, but I'm going to play the detective who thinks it's correct mm-hmm. and just goes on those hunches. So, what else about this episode jumped out to you? Something about the clues, I believe. Yeah. So, there are specific moments in the episode that uh, we talked about. The Getting into his car, he breaks the glasses. And there's stuff done during that to make it really obvious that he broke his glasses. Like, the foley, the, the sound yeah. effects from when he sits on the glasses is something shattering. And these are just bent up. And he picks them up and they're completely flat. Yeah. The actual glasses aren't actually broken, but they're completely flattened. Okay, so there's a balance here with clues. And this this is the case with any sort of narrative, whether you're playing at the table or you're uh, doing a, a show or, or a book or whatever. How obvious do you make your clues, right? You want them to stand out uh, so that people remember them when they're important again later on, but you don't you don't necessarily, you may, but you don't necessarily want to say, hello, there's a clue right mm-hmm. here. Pay attention. And what you really want to do, you want people to realize something's off, think it might be a clue, and then feel vindicated when it turns out to be a clue, which is what we just did in this episode. Yeah, so that's what this episode does well. And we talked about it with the glasses and also with when he gets paid uh, for a case, how these stand out because they're, they don't feel like a normal Rockford moment. Yeah. And then the episode pays off by telling us, no, you were right. That wasn't a real Rockford moment. So those moments, I feel like, are, first of all, those rely, for us, the way that we are appreciating them right now, Mm -hmm. does rely on us watching a lot of the Rockford Files. Yeah. They work as part of the narrative, but if this was the first episode of the Rockford Files you ever watched, they probably wouldn't stand out to you in the way that they stood out to us. Right. There would just be moments. So I feel like this particular technique is easier to execute uh, when you have established a baseline and then you're able to start making variations on it to create the here's a clue, here's a here's a nod to something that happened that's out of the right. ordinary. You, you get a, a backdrop that you can stand out against. I think in games, we usually want to err on the side of pointing things out yeah. over 
subtlety. I've definitely had this experience where it's like, I'm going to lay out these clues for this mystery. No one seems to understand that they're clues. Yeah. Why aren't you people picking up on the fact that these are clues? Game, games have gotten better, I think, about systematizing that with the far end of that spectrum being uh, like the gumshoe system yeah. that Pelgrain does, where when you spend points to get clues, whatever you get is a clue. Like it's defined by the fact that you're looking for it. There are other techniques in play, I think, to nudge that realization without uh going all the way to that end of the spectrum it's one of these things where the best practices is not whether or not you do something it's being aware that you're doing it and working towards okay so imagine this episode where he gets roughed up comes home to his trailer and they jump him right and then yeah uh, Ray is drumming on the table and then suddenly freeze frame, you know, the words clue number one comes up and then we move on and we get to when he sits on uh, his glasses and he pulls them out, freeze frame clue number two. It would definitely be a different style than how Rockford files, you know, work. But if you played to that style, you could still have an audience that's like, okay, that's a clue. I don't get how or why. And I'm going right. to find out, and that's interesting, and that's ex an exciting, dramatic moment. Even, like, going to, like, when she pays him, just without trying, and they freeze frame clue number three, you may even go, wait a minute, why is she paying him? I bet you mm -hmm. she's working. If you get a few of them, but not all of them, it's a complex enough picture. We've got two mysteries to solve here, and we're, you know... right. So it's perfectly functional to err on the side of being obvious with it, as long as you pay attention to what you're doing and know the purpose of the clue in your narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Like if the purpose of the clue is to sit in the back of the, the audience's mind and suddenly jump forward when it makes sense and think, oh, I should have noticed that, mm -hmm. then that's one thing. Or if it's to be like, all of this will make sense, just know this and then know this and you, you try and piece it together as you go along. That's fun too. I think maybe a valuable thought experiment also mm -hmm. is what happens if you re reverse the order of the cause of the clue and then the clue happening. This episode could have been filmed in such a way where you see the PI go into Rockford's car Right. And put the bug in and put his glasses, leave his glasses on the seat. And then in the next scene, Rockford sits on the glasses and he holds them up. Yes. That doesn't change the narrative. Like no. the, the, the events still happen, but it does change the relationship uh, between the audience and the show. I think we, we harp on this a lot, but it's because Rockford Files makes a different choice with almost every episode that we watch. Yeah. About how much information do we know? Does Rockford know and do, you know, the villains or whoever, the causal agents know? Some episodes, we see everything and Rockford needs to figure it out and we're watching him run around and figure it out. And that's the joy of the show. Right. Uh, and then in this one, we're with Rockford every step of the way as he figures it out. So we're sharing in his discovery and that's the joy of the show. So what I'm getting to here is how does your narrative hold up if we see what happens and then the clue is revealed? Yeah. If that still holds up, then that's good, right? Like that's you've. Yeah. You've covered your bases. If your audience is more on top of it than you expect, you're not running into problems. Mm -hmm. And if your audience isn't as on top of it as you hope, you're not going to run into problems. Yeah. If the big payoff for the narrative is spoiled by someone figuring out all the clues ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess in like detective fiction, right? Like that is kind of a genre where the writer and the audience are actually kind of sparring about right. kind of uh, Agatha Christie tradition of the, the author is putting in clues. But part of the joy of reading it is trying to figure out the solution before you get to the end of the book. That I'm not really 
uh, I don't have a lot of authority to talk about because when I read those, I don't try to figure them out. I just enjoy the story as I read it. Yeah, I, w- I will say that there is a phenomenon where people who enjoy that sort of detective fiction will read the last few pages before mm-hmm. they start so that they know that it's going to a satisfying place or that they can pay attention to what's happening. I'm, I'm not saying that that's common practice, but it's not an uncommon practice. And I think that that's interesting. <laughs> that gets into some fun bits where people can engage with the product, the narrative product that you've created in a way that you may not have anticipated. For instance, it's entirely likely that when they made the Rockford Files, they didn't expect two such as us <laughs> to do a <laughs> podcast that picked apart each episode <laughs> with the detail that we're doing it, but it holds up. I guess a lot of what we talk about in this in this segment is trying to get at the roots of why does it hold up in the way that right. it does. And in this episode, I think there's two main elements. One is that the, the episode is very clear about the character of Clementi. It's a very consistent character that they know what his deal is, and there's no mystery around will he, won't he, is right. he, isn't he. The mystery is between Clementi, who's a solid character, and Rockford, who's a solid character. And then the other is that the the causal chain of when you learn a clue, when the clue is revealed to be relevant, and how that act influenced the story is well thought out and tracks with all the character motivations and has its own internal coherency. Mm -hmm. So when you discover those things, they make sense and they feel correct. And those are two things that the Rockford Files does really well. It's having these solid characters. You feel like they are driving the story because they're acting like themselves. And it stands out to us when a character shows up that's like, this character is just here to be part of the story. Yeah, the the few moments where that happens. So I guess those are the two strong elements in this one that we're kind of picking at. In fact, it stands out so much that, like, the fact that Ray started drumming before mm-hmm. they tried to beat up Rockford, I was like, oh, that's just the thing that this guy does. I didn't feel like that was at odds with how Rockford... I was like, this is a character who enjoys drumming just before they beat the shit out of some guy. And then it's revealed later that he's a drummer and he's yeah, a musician. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that actually also makes sense with this character. Yeah. Those are some of the, the strong things from this episode. Do you have yeah. anything else... Do we want to talk a little bit about the stalking horse? Oh, sure. And I will say that my extensive knowledge of this comes entirely from Wikipedia. But apparently where this comes from is when hunting wild birds, the the hunters discover that the birds, when they're scared off by humans approaching them, are less scared by animals. So they would hide behind horses so that they could stalk up on, on these birds and then hunt them that way. So that plays out into the metaphor of this political usage where you sneak it before the public uh, in a way that isn't going to scare them off right away to see if it's going to work. In a way that has few, fewer consequences if it, if it fails. If this was the Clementi Files, uh-huh. that would be the theme of this particular episode, right? Like, that would be the con that Clementi is running to solve this particular crime. By the way, I probably would watch a few episodes of Clementi Files. <laughs> He's an engaging character. Yeah. I would watch more of him. If, unfortunately, this character does not recur in the Rockford Files. But I think that this is an interesting trope to use. I- I'm trying to think about it in distinction to something like a Patsy. Yeah. Where you just want someone to take the fall for something. I like this as an idea for, you know, modeling an interaction. Rockford is being used not just, as you say, to take a fall, but because he has some kind of skill or some yeah. kind of ability that Clementi doesn't. Again, if this were the Clementi files and that's what this episode was about, then the twist would be 
that Rockford isn't a dope he can play like that. Right. Right. Like yeah. the, the, the twist would be that Rockford cottons to it quickly. I, I just imagine from Clementi's point of view, when Rockford shows up at his garage, mm-hmm. that's when it all starts falling apart. That's when yeah. you start panicking and you're like, oh no, how did he find this? It's great. It's a strong dynamic to bring together two characters or two groups of characters because this could definitely be done in like a party situation, right? In a game yeah. where someone's using the group as a stalking horse or something like that. But I think one of the key things for the purpose of, of narrative impact is that the two groups or the two individuals have differing skill sets. Yeah. You don't want to send the person who's basically the same as you out because what's the point? Then it's more of a Fall Guy situation, you would imagine, or or a frame or something like that. An interesting take on this would be if you had a PI that was working with Clementi who was agreeing to be the stalking horse. Mm-hmm. Somebody that would go out and do the PI work and get into trouble. Actually, you know what? Now that blah, blah, blahing about it here it occurred to me that that's the plot of in some ways that's the plot of remington steel mm. the uh the premise there is that she's a detective but in the 80s as a woman she's not getting any jobs so she invents a detective right. name the, the the manly name of remington steel and at first it's just an actor playing the role and so she goes out and does this all the hard work while he attracts all the attention. But what's interesting here, right, is that in that case, I haven't watched that show a lot. I just kind of know about it. But it's it's a it's a consensual relationship, right? Like they're right. in it together. What makes Clementi a villain here is, is that, that he doesn't not. tell Rockford what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Like if he'd come to Rockford, buttered him up or something. I mean, Rockford probably still wouldn't have done it because he's Rockford. <laughs> but that's a different story, right? Where he comes to him and says, you're already involved with this case. I'll work this angle, you work this angle, we'll split yeah. the money or something like that, right? Then it be- then it brings him into the con game and he becomes part of it. But what makes Clementi a villain here is that he takes advantage of his skills. And so that's what makes it really dynamic and, and the reason why they mm-hmm. have a conflict. Uh, do you have anything else to add? One other little piece of research I did was into this idea of serving an injunction for using Rockford's name in his book. Right. Because that, again, feels a little bit like a, a TV thing. And I was... Wondering, as a publisher and someone you know <laughs> with a vested interest in IP and copyright law, I wanted to know what the deal was. So I just did a little bit of research. I'm not a lawyer. In, in the U.S., it is a state-level thing where generally private citizens have what's called a right of publicity. The use of your name or likeness or, or voice or you know stuff like that for an exploitative purpose without your consent is grounds for a lawsuit or, or trying to get this right. kind of thing stopped. Uh, you also have the right to privacy, which interacts with the right of publicity in certain ways. But yeah, this is totally a thing that could happen, especially because Rockford makes the point of you are damaging my business because my business right. relies on anonymity. You can kind of see the the argument of use my name, it's exploiting my business, and it's making it difficult for me to live my life, and I did not give my consent. Uh, in my bookkeeping for Rockford, I have a big question mark there because I would assume, but uh, it was not stated in the episode at all, the injunction would be accompanied with a lawsuit with damages. Like he right. would like to recover money that he says he would have lost because of the publicity that this occurred. I could have made this much money, but your book drove customers right. away. Yeah, it's not specified. Also, I think the mere fact that he's stiffed Clementi about the one thing he cares about, which is his yeah. book, I think is probably enough for him. So 
uh, psychics being hired to help out on uh, cases, not true. <laughs> Getting an injunction to stop someone from selling a book that has your name in it when you did not give them permission to do so, that's a thing. Well, well done. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. However, <laughs> there you go. Close the book on that one. <laughs> I think we earned our 200 for the day. I would agree with you. Thank you so much for listening to uh, yeah to another episode of the podcast, and we will see you next time when we talk about another episode of the Rockford Files.